0: Good evening ladies and gentlemen, this is Gerardo Poli. And this, oh, sorry. <laughs> okay.
1: okay. Okay. Okay.
0: One of the best bits of advice I've ever received was to find good mentors and to learn from them trusted people who have already done what you're trying to do now. I've been fortunate throughout my career to have some fantastic mentors to help guide me, but I realise that they'd be hard to find and also hard to commit the time to one. This is why we've gathered some of the best minds from the Brittany world and squeezed them for their wisdom so that you don't have to learn the hard way.
1: With the help of our guests, we flip the veterinary profession on its back and explore its soft underbelly to find the tips, tools and inspiration that you'll need to build the career that you've always wanted. I'm Gerardo Poli. I'm Hubert Hemstra. And this is The Vet Vault.
0: One message that we hear time and time again from our guests here at the Vet Vault is that success or happiness or fulfillment or performance or whatever you want to call it starts in your head. In this episode, we explore what's happening inside that head of yours and how we can influence it for the better. Veterinarian, public speaker, and coach, Dr. Katie Ford graduated from the University of Liverpool in the UK in 2012. And gained her certificate in medicine in 2016. Externally, she was very successful.
1: She had a great career. She was a successful clinician who was loved by clients. She was one of the youngest vets ever to pass the certificate synoptic exam. Her future looked bright, but internally things were a bit more complicated. She was at the mercy of her perfectionist imposter brain, that voice inside her head. The one that keeps you at work hours and hours after your shift ended while you double and triple check everything was
0: telling her that she was a fraud and that she would never be good enough. With the power of mindset, consciousness, and an understanding of the internal workings of her brain, Katie turned her life around. She was trained in cognitive behavior therapy, broadband consciousness, and also completed programs under the father of personal development himself. Bob Proctor of the Proctor Gallagher Institute. Katie is passionate about positivity in practice, awesome workplace culture and career fulfillment. She currently practices as a locum veterinary surgeon across the Northwest, finding joy in meeting and influencing her colleagues in practice and through official coaching for vets and nurses on a one-on-one or group basis. Join us as we talk to Katie
1: about imposter syndrome what it is and how to identify and deal with it, about ways to train your mind and trick your body through visualization, why we should be happy to sometimes be a failure, how to celebrate your wins without depending on them for your self-worth, and much more. Please enjoy Dr. Katie Ford. Dr. Katie Ford, welcome to the VetVault. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Toronto was actually on time tonight.
0: (laughs) If you count being the... Two minutes late and eating a cucumber at ten o'clock at night. Then I, oh, that's fine. I'll take that as a, as, as an on time. <laughs> Katie, I'm gonna jump straight in
1: with a with a slightly left of setup question. Um, the other night I was driving up the up the freeway, um, and there's a there's a design company. Actually, I think it's a marketing company who, who paint these words of wisdom or interesting things on the side of the building. About once a month they change it, and they had one up that said. Bad decisions lead to good stories. And all the way home, I was thinking about going, what, that's a cool statement. And I immediately thought that is a question. I don't know if it's a statement or a question. So bad decisions lead to good stories. True or false?
2: Oh, you know, that is a tough one because anyone that follows my Instagram will know that I am a massive Gary Vaynerchuk geek and Gary thinks you can't have bad decisions. So I'm going to go with false just on the pretense that no bad decisions, but if you tweaked it slightly to controversial decisions come up with good stories, I'd go with absolutely true. I think that anything that's a little bit off the wall usually has a pretty good tale to follow it.
1: Okay. Give us a, give us a controversial <laughs> decision then. Oh, that let's, you let's a good have one from for you.
2: me. Let's see. I'm probably going to go with, I remember, obviously, you guys... Being Australian, have you been to Bali? I'm going to assume yes.
0: Psst, yes I don't a, think Hubert's ever been to Indonesia.
2: Really?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I have spent quite a bit of time there. Correct. Yes.
2: Oh, really? Um, well, we went to Bali a couple of years ago. We went to um, a little island, Lembongan. Mm-hmm. And my um, my partner, he wanted to go and do a, a fishing expedition. And probably being one of the most frugal people that I've ever come across, we had to go and barter with every single captain <laughs> as to how much it was going to be to go on this fishing <laughs> expedition. So um, we ended up finding a guy who says, "Oh, for a million rupees, I'll take you out and." I guarantee to you yeah we'll catch some fish and it'll all be great so it's like right okay and what my boyfriend didn't bargain for was that we'd have to get there at five o'clock in the morning to catch the sunrise so right, we get there and we realize that this guy's going to take us out to sea in what looks like the most rickety sea boat that I've ever seen with no life jackets nothing and I'm stood there like this seems like a bad decision you know because if we get out to sea and you fall off the back with your fishing rod, he pushes me over and he returns home. Like nothing ever happens. He had no guests. He had no English people in his boat. (laughs) That was it. And I was like, what are we going to do? And my, my boyfriend is like fearless. He's like, Oh, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. So I kind of like a little sheep follow him into the boat and think, you know what? Yeah, it'll be all right. This seems like a terrible decision, you know? Um, But we actually had an amazing time. And, you know, if I'd stuck with the the sensible safe choice of going and sitting on the beach and doing nothing, we would have missed out because we did go out to sea, did catch fish. We ended up going and sitting with the little Balinese family in the evening. Grandad cooked and gutted the fish for us. He made a barbecue out of dried coconuts. He cooked it for us. They made sauces for us. And we sat with them all. And that would never have happened if we hadn't made that decision now I'm never advocating that everybody goes out to sea with zero protection but at the same time it it was a story that I found pretty cool that that came to mind I I won't lie the whole time that I was there that little voice in my head was like Simon's gonna slip off the end of this boat he's gonna go under the water and then the little captain is gonna push you off the edge and that'll be it (laughs) I'm here and I survived
0: And he's like, I got my 100 Australian dollars, or how much in the UK would that be? That would be like, like 50 50? bucks, 40 50 bucks, or 40 50 something like that. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I'd do that to Hubert 30 100 bucks. You'd kill me for 400 bucks. bucks. Yeah, (laughs) I'd I'd, I'd kill you for fun, man, (laughs) because I'm on time at the time, and you're always like. I'm. I'm so torn about that story because I'm
1: all for risk taking. I. I think we're way, way, way too risk averse, as a, as a society. And I love a good bargain, um. But I think I draw the line at at ocean fairing. <laughs> there's a standard. There's a standard when it comes to the ocean where you want to go. Well, maybe cheapest isn't always the.
0: Best. <laughs> it's a happy ending. I like it. <laughs> I'm the worst for bargaining. It's like I'm just I'm just a sucker. I, like people see me coming from a mile away, and and they just go, "Oh, look at that sucker!" And the next, you know, the prices are probably three times higher than actually what they were before. But I I, too, I do totally believe actually that what she was saying was was you know trying something that's different out of your comfort zone and and like for me um, traveling internationally is actually something that causes me quite a lot of stress. And my recent trip to I well, not recent, but in November I went to. To the US and I am like a klutz in an airport. I, I do not know where to go and I don't get it. And then I like I have a headset on, listen to music when important announcements come on. So like inherently the whole thing is very stressful. And um there's one thing that I like that I thought I would never be able to master, and that is the New York subway system. And when I went to New York just recently, I was like, I am going to master this thing. And I went so many like so many times in the wrong direction that eventually I learned like, 17 trips in two days on the train station. I finally mastered it. And it was just like the biggest achievement, like of my whole entire trip was this New York subway system.
1: Isn't that satisfying hey, to conquer something like that? I really do think that's one of the big things of, of starting to travel when you're young is those little victories that just m- make you feel like oh, I can conquer that. I can do, I can do freaking anything.
2: Definitely, I agree. There's so much that we end up with in our heads that you think is a big deal, and so you actually just get out there and start doing it, and then it becomes normality, which there's so many parallels to draw with, with our profession as well when you, when you look at it alongside the traveling aspect.
1: Which, which brings me to the, the next question. Katie, you, you talk a lot about um, imposter syndrome. It's one of, your, one of your, your big topics, and I've read a bit about what you've said. So here we are. Um, probably about a thousand to two thousand people are going to listen to this um, hopefully lots more uh, and they're going to listen to this li- trying to get some advice from you or learn something something from you and they're here to listen to your opinion how does that make you feel
2: i think that's super exciting i think really empowering the fact that even if a handful of people take something from it it's worthwhile mm-hmm
0: so what is it about that? Okay. So, so it's exciting, right, as opposed to fearful because everyone, I don't know, we've, we've had a couple of podcast guests come on and, and um, you know, like if, uh, who? Who's the guy who wrote the book about find your why? Simon Sinek, right? Um, and how your physiological state between uh, fear and excitement is so close, right, that your body feels exactly the same that ultimately it's just a thing in your head which just goes like that's actually exciting right and you said exciting there right which both you and I were like whoa, whoa. um but you know like it, it, what is it about it you know you said there was like two let's say three people listen to this like another you know, like two thousand people listen to this but three people walked away and changed their lives is that a big enough impact? If
2: only one person walked away from it and it changed their life, it would be a big enough impact. I look back at my story and the like the darkest, worst times that I had. And my life changing was enough for me. So if that could happen for someone else just from listening to this, that's enough for me. Like there's there's a quote, I can't remember who said it, but if you change one person's life, then that's it. That's enough for your whole life. So I'd be satisfied with one. Mm.
1: So tell us more about about that. You mentioned the the darkest period in your life.
2: I I graduated in two thousand and twelve. I went into my first job, and during that time, I was kind of quite forgiving to myself for the first few months. I so was a new graduate. You can't know it all. But as time went on, I was starting to feel like I was asking too much. You shouldn't be asking these things. Go and find the answer somewhere else. So. I'd start reading the textbooks, I'd start um, speaking to the referral center, I'd ring the lab, anything that I could do to try and stop me speaking to my boss, because in my head, I felt like they were paying me and I should be able to do the job and I should stop asking him so many questions. And sort of as time went on, this got me good results and got me good case outcomes. But at the same time, I had this voice that was in my head that was saying to me, yeah, but you asked that. You were just the middleman. You didn't really know that. And as time progressed, this kind of snowballed and got worse. And despite the fact that I was getting the good case outcomes and it was my doing, I didn't feel like I owned them. And I ended up moving to another job, which was like on paper, the perfect job. I had a really supportive boss who paid me through an internal medicine certificate. I had longer consults, twice as long consult time as most places And a really nice team. But I kind of had this little voice in my head that was saying to me, you might have got this wrong. You need to double check that. And it got louder and louder and to the point where I couldn't switch off outside of work at all, to the point where my only way to kind of try and remedy this was to stay in work for longer. And I was there like every waking hour of the day. And in my mind, that was to try and disaster prevent because I felt like something was going to go wrong that I'd missed and should have done. And if I wasn't there to sort it, then everyone would realize that it was this big fraud. But on the outside of this, I was hugely successful. Like I was the vet everyone wanted to see. I had my internal medicine certificate. I was um, on the local radio talking about... Um, pet care, and all sorts of pet conditions. I'd spoken at conferences, I was published, like I had everything, but in my head, I really didn't feel like it was true, or it was mine. And it started as a niggle, but it snowballed more and more. I'd I'd go out for dinner with friends, and I'd be having coffee, and this little voice would chirp in and be like, yeah, but you might have forgotten this. Or do you remember when that client asked to see your boss and not to see you? Maybe you did something wrong, do they hate you? And I wake up in the middle of the night like thinking about cases and I actually thought that I had a broken brain after a while I was like you've got everything on the outside that looks like the formula to be happy and be a good fit and be satisfied but you don't feel it and you've chased the next thing and you've got there and then you've still not got what you're looking for I wasn't even sure what I was looking for and then the next thing came and I got it and I still didn't have the feeling and eventually it got to the point where I used to sit when I was on call just crying and sobbing with like my head in my hands like I do not know what is wrong with my brain like why is it that I can do everything so right everything can go so well and the tiniest little thing will pull me into like a massive downward crash and I'll be honest I've said it in previous interviews before it got to the point where I'd go and I'd get in the car and I'd just drive and drive and drive and cry and not know what was wrong with me because all the other people I worked with just thought I was really grumpy and that I was a control freak. And if anything went wrong, I'd be really mad with them because in my brain, I was like torturing myself because I was listening to this, this negative critic all the time. So on these car drives, it would go through my head on multiple occasions. Maybe the easiest thing is just going to be drive the car into a wall and just stop it end it now because that that was what would happen to me. That was how bad that it got. And luckily, I came through that and I realized there were ways to get get over that. But they were the darkest times that, that I had. They say, like, talk to yourself like you talk to your best friend. If I talked to my best friend, like the way that I used to talk to myself, I'd have no friends left. And that was a, a huge mixture between imposter syndrome and that was snowballed and managed to end up as like a mixture between probably depression and anxiety because it was uncontrolled. But I never talked about this to anyone, particularly at the time. Everybody just thought they saw the outside, Katie.
0: Yeah. So like you shared a lot there and 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 like I, I remember going through phases like that as well when I was a new graduate and even stages as well when I was... There's, there's a phase when you learn a lot that sometimes you feel like as if you learn that you just, there's so much more to learn that what you've learned yeah. is not enough. It's kind of in you know, this blissful ignorance before you learn something. And all of a sudden, after you learn something, you're like, holy shit, there's so much more that I just don't know. But how, how, do you, how did you turn that off? Like, how did you... You know, what, what did you the, do, I suppose?
2: Well, two things. The first one was the only person I ever spoke to about any of it was my old boss, who was really supportive. And this was at a point where I was sort of five years qualified by this point. And she said to me, look, I'm really worried about you. You are a brilliant vet. I've never worked with a better one, but you can't see it. Like, I don't know how to get you to see. And she ended up getting me to go to the doctors where I did go through CBT I had cognitive behavior therapy, which helped get me out of a a hole, as it were, and made things a bit better. But then after that, I found another technique called broadband consciousness, which helped me realize about this inner critic that we've got and the the narratives that we've got in our head. And maybe not everything that we talk about is necessarily our own. And that's when my life absolutely changed.
0: It's kind of like like the, the Everplane radio station, right? that just plays and plays and plays in your head. And it's just this, jada, 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 you fucked up this, you did this wrong, you stuffed this up, right? And, and whether or not you listen to it or push it out, like, what did you learn from this? Like, is is, is that kind of a similar concept? You're, you're, very, you're,
2: very similar. So it's kind of like you say, you've got like default FM as a radio station that, In broadband consciousness, they call it the script, which is like the audio version of what you've learned going through your life. So when you're born, you don't have a script, but you go through. And you might learn from your parents, look, when you don't have enough money, you get stressed. You might learn when you're at the airport, it's a really scary experience because you don't know what's going on. Um, You might learn um, you've got to be slim to be happy because you watch your family stressing about what they're eating and what they're wearing. And then slowly it's got these opinions of... If you've got a lot of qualifications, you must know exactly what you're doing. And you get that written into the script, as it were. And then you're absolutely right. It plays like default FM, like, you're stupid. You're not good enough. You can't do that. You're not that type of person. They don't believe what you're saying. You're not a good vet. You're going to get found out. Worry, 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 worry. And it still pops in for me now. Like Mm -hmm. After a bitch, they always want to say, oh, it's going to be bleeding to death right now. But I can tune out of that and say, look. I was happy with my hemostasis at the end of the surgery. It's got a nice capillary refill time. It's normal. It's got pink mucous membranes. It's got a normal heart rate and a normal respirator. This dog is not bleeding out. Thank you for your input.
1: So so is that the, the secret? Is it, is it logic? Do you feed the script with logic or how do you how do you defeat the script?
2: So the script is always gonna keep coming back, but you choose not to believe it. All that I do, it comes down to really simple choices would I choose to feel like this or not? And if you're not choosing to feel like that, you're having a feeling, because thoughts lead to feelings, lead to actions. You're having a thought that you probably wouldn't choose. So I just say, is this me or is this the script? And if it's not me, I know it's the script. And usually I just either tell a better story myself, or I just let it drift past. Because at the end of the day, we all get quite conditioned to think that thoughts are facts. And that every thought that we have must have some significance and it must be true. But it's not. Thoughts just float by. Like there's a really nice analogy in CBT where they say, <clears throat> imagine that your brain is a road and you stood at the side of the road and going past on the road, a big double decker of buses, which are your thoughts. And some of them say on them, like, I'm stupid, I'm a bad vet, I'm not very good at this. You don't have to get on every bus that goes past, the thought can come into your head and it can leave, but you don't have to give it significance and say, look, there's a reason this is here. It's just like there popped that thought. And I think the more that we talk about things like that and the more like Gerardo can say, you know, sometimes I have these thoughts and they'll all look at you on Instagram as the amazing vet that you are and say, well, if he thinks that sometimes and I know it's not true, then maybe it's not true for me as well.
0: Mm. One of the things that actually was a defining thing in my head What's actually changing my first word. And I, I think it was a Tony Robbins thing, but I like I totally believe that it has made the biggest difference in in, in that. And then that was just like, how do I respond to a situation? And it used to be, holy shit, I can't believe this is happening. I can't oh my God, how does this happening to me? Oh my God. And then it would it, it would start a cascade of just like anxiety, stress, pressure, and then rolls down into I can't I can't do this, I'm not qualified enough, blah, 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 blah. And look, there are some complete things that I'm not qualified to do. Like I'm not going to go scoop brain out of a dog's head with a spoon, right? Okay, but 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 there are things now where it's like, like it's just, you just need, like just, you need a couple seconds to choose. The word that comes to my mind now, whenever something bad, you know, I'm a director of two hospitals, I get bad stuff all the time. My God, the the oxygen plants shut down. And I know instantly that's like $20,000 or something like that, right? And it's like, how do I stop that? How do I stop that from actually destroying my day? It's like, wow. The word is wow for me. And all of a sudden it's like, wow. And then I got two seconds and I'm like, the next question is, okay, what are we going to do? And it, it's just become a habit of mine, which actually helps me actually cope with some pretty big stressful things. And, and, and it slowly then is translated into the fact that the radio station is always going to play And I can't control the radio station, but slowly over time, slowly over time, the radio station would change tune because of the fact that actually the way that I respond to it. I don't shut it out, but I actually kind of just change the way that I respond. So I don't know. Did you change the, like, is there something about um, just accepting that the radio station is going to play and you, like, just, thank it somehow sometimes because some psychologists, some, some, psychologist, some therapists will go, you thank your radio station? Oh, thanks. That's really helpful. Thank you for alerting me, but I choose to act this way.
2: I mean, certainly, I think definitely in terms of the radio station, sometimes I think rather than the fact that you can shut it off, I almost think about just switching channel. And it is always going to keep trying and pop its input in because it's been there for years. This is the thing. It took me 25 years to discover this. So it was very familiar to have that radio station playing. And sometimes, yeah, I do say thanks for your input, but I don't believe you. Thank you for that. But I'm going to choose something different. And you're absolutely right. Like event plus response is the outcome. Like whatever happens, it's just going to be the way that you respond to it that dictates what's actually going to happen in the end. So, yeah, I... I do think it sometimes. Are there
1: other are ways that you practice this? I, so you can, you can coach me, coach Katie. Um, Cause I, I'm, I, I cerebrally know all these things. I've read a lot about it and, 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 and try to try to apply it to my own life and that, but then sometimes that, that script or Gerardo, if you, you say to me the oxygen thing, the oxygen, oxygen generators just died. And I, even though it hasn't happened, I go, oh. I don't say, Oh, wow. I say, Oh, i <laughs> uh, and then it, and then'm I'm, I'm aware that it's in the back of my head that thought. so let's say I've got a problem at work, a client complaint I'm dealing with or staff issue or something like that. And I have a plan to deal with it, and then but then now I've got to go and hang out with my kids, you know go kick, kick a ball at the beach or something like that. Tomorrow I'm going to deal with that problem. That bloody voice, even though I, even though I recognize it. I go, yes, I know what you're doing. I don't need to worry about this now. Thank you. I'll worry about it tomorrow. And then five minutes later, it's there again. And said, like, just to remind you, you still have that problem that you have to deal with tomorrow. <laughs> 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 have you thought about it recently? <laughs>
2: I'll tell you, that is exactly what the script does. Like It's constantly going to keep chipping in and trying to tell you these things. That The first thing that I always explain to coaching clients is, we explain who they really are, which when you look at in science, they've done studies to try and work out the odds of us actually landing on this planet as a human being. And the crazy thing is that the minimum odds were one in 400 trillion, or it could actually be one in 400 quadrillion or more. For us to be here, they went through like the odds of your mother meeting your father, the odds of like gametes lining up, the and they get to that final figure. And yet, the script will constantly every day try and pull you away from that, that importance and that power and that specialness to look at, like, oh, this is important and this is important. And so many of these things aren't going to be important. So what I'd be doing in that circumstance is sometimes you can visit worst-case scenario. You know, if it's saying to you, there'll be absolutely no oxygen available. Well, you know what? What would happen in that circumstance? Could I deal with it? Would there be a way to cope with it? And there would be, and you'd come up with a logical explanation. So you take away its power. When suddenly, because it's trying to get you with what if this happens? Well, if you visit that and say, well, I do this, then suddenly it doesn't have anything over you. Mm -hmm. So you can say, right, okay, thank you. And then at the end of the day, so many people balance their identity and their self-worth on external things. So whether that's on their qualification, the Mm -hmm. hospital that they own, anything Mm -hmm. else. And actually... Our self-worth needs to come down to being us and being alive because that's the only thing that can't be taken away. And that, like we say, the one in 400 trillion odds, which is crazy when you think about it, it's the same odds as flipping a coin 30,000 times in a row and it always landing on its edge. So I would just, first of all, when that voice comes in, call its bluff, say, right, okay, if that did happen, I'd deal with it could we be wrong? Like, what if something good happened? What if it's okay? What if things do work out? Because we've become so accustomed down the thought path of these negative thoughts and things that what if we change that belief? What if we change our interpretation the same way that Gerardo changes um, his response to a situation? Mm. And will this matter in five years' time? Because again, the script likes to catastrophize. It likes to make things worse. And when you get... um, catastrophization you get procrastination and you end up sitting and dwelling on those thoughts and the final one thing i'd say is when you are feeling like you're stuck listening to it go and change your state go and do some exercise go and distract yourself gently from it because the way that one of my um, my coaches says, she names her script. She says she's she's Scottish, actually, the lady. So she calls her script "We Fat Brittany. And she says she just wants her to lie in bed all day, eat cake, lie under the duvet and hide away from everyone. And she said, that's not the solution. because What you give energy to grows. So if you sit and think on these thoughts like, oh, my God, and then this will happen and this will happen and this will happen then you almost live it because like we were saying before your brain doesn't know the difference between excitement and fear it also doesn't know the difference between reality and imagination so your physiology changes in the way that all those things had already happened so you suffer twice you suffer once from the imagination version of it where your brain has gone through it in your head and then you suffer again if it actually happened
0: so you said something several times there, probably I think about 20 times. And I think it's the key word. Like me personally, I think it's actually the key word. When you're stuck or when you, I don't know, procrastinating, when you are just not doing the things you should do or you feel like as if you don't know the way forward or you're overwhelmed. Like I feel like that one word is what is like, but like what could I do? What should I do? What if, I mean, what would the best version of me do right now? What would Hubert do right now? You know, what would Katie do right now? A little fat Hubert or just normally? <laughs> 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 what would Superman do right now? It's like almost <laughs> like you gotta, like you gotta coach yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Of a situation because yeah. no one's going to come and tap you on the shoulder. And go, hey, hey, Katie, you stuck under the duvet. What should you be doing right now instead of watching Netflix? I don't know. For me, for me, like the the, the fundamental thing is what, what should I do? What can I do?
2: I think definitely you just take it down to, is there anything I can do right now, Hmm. which is going to come down to yes or no. If it's a no, then we've got to just be stronger with ourselves and say, look, there is nothing we can Hmm. do right now. If there is, yes, can I do it right now? Or can I plan to do it? Hmm. And the script is so good at thinking 95% about the problem and 5% solution. And then we choose, like the real us, one in 400 trillion, like you've landed on planet Earth as a human us, start thinking solution. And then things move forward.
0: The reason why I like what as opposed to is is because what is, it is a yes no, right? But what is like, you have no yes no. It's like, oh yeah. What could I do? Like, and like, only because I used to ask my, myself is like, is there something I can do now? And it's like, no, there isn't something to do. It's their fault. It's the situation that I am, but it was like, what can I do now? It's like, okay, what could I do as a, a person, as a choice?
1: I, I think my, I'm listening to what you guys are saying and it's, and it's all true. I, I think that what I struggle with more is, it's exactly that. My brain is coming up with the what, um, but I don't want to think about it now because I've, I've thought of it earlier. I've already come up with this. Mm. I have the what in my head. I have a plan. So yeah. now I want to forget about it. I want to engage with, it's mostly with my kids, to be honest. I want to, I want to do something fun with them and not think about that. And then my brain's coming up with more what. What about that? You should go do that. What about, uh, and then I want to go and do it. But I, but it's hard to switch it off and say not now. Just let f- it f- go for a little bit, <laughs> and we can we can get back to this at a later stage. But anyway, we won't we won't dwell on it. No, no, that's that's a really good question. Right?
0: No, that's a great question because it's it's it, what happens, right? You find yourself, it, it, it's hard to transition from crisis to normal normality, right? Unless you have some kind of ritual or unless you do it deliberately. But still, the radio station is playing, right? So, I don't know, Katie. I've I have a, 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 a like a, a potential thing that I use, but what what would how would you suggest, or what would you know? I don't mean to put you on the spot now, but like you know. I no, would. no, that's fine. Mm.
2: I mean, certainly a couple of different things. First thing would be in terms of like mindfulness, being in the moment there and then. So. Just even if you take it down to, I find that gratitude tends to flush out everything else going on. So even if you just sat there and you're like, right, I'm going to list 10 things in my head that I'm grateful for in this moment right now. So that brings you into what's going on now. The second thing would be like meditation, for example, is something I definitely changed my mind on recently, but that's getting used to just letting the thoughts float past, but like we were saying with the buses, not getting on one of them as well so when you're in that moment yep the script or the negative voice or the radio station it's gonna come on but it's almost like a reflex after a while it does get stronger the more you practice it thank you for being there but I'm enjoying the moment right now and here are the things I'm enjoying about it and that's what I'd be doing sort of listing the things you were grateful for in that moment taking it all in because so often um Ed Milet who's uh, another speaker he says um that there are there are two thieves, um, and that's the pres- the past and the future because they steal your present from you. That voice always wants to tell you what has just happened or what's about to happen. And if you're just conscious enough to look at what's happening in front of you right now, then I find that really helps, certainly. I'd be really interested to see what you have to say, Gerardo, as well, if it's along similar lines or if you've got something different.
0: Oh, it's, it's similar to that too, Um but what, like what I've found is I've done the same thing as well. It's really hard to switch off um, because like when you're not thinking about something, right, when you're just in the state of just relaxation or whatever, all of a sudden you think of, oh, shit, I, that's the solution mm-hmm. to that problem, mm-hmm. you know. So your theta brain states when you're in the shower just trying to chill, all of a sudden you think of solutions for, I don't know, how to get to Mars or something like that, right? I don't, I've i never thought of a solution to that. I'm just saying. but. Uh, <laughs> but um, but just thinking what, about me when you're in the shower. Just thinking about you for a <laughs> while. You know what? I was going to say you should chop this out, but you're not going to chop it out. you immortalized and I'm going to be thinking about you in the shower while I'm in the shower. Am I thinking about you in the shower while I'm in the shower? Okay. Okay. Here we go. Seriously. So no, no, no. But I, I, actually one thing that I've, I – I learned this from Liz Crow, actually, and it was really powerful for me. Liz Crow – um, was one of our previous pod sp- our podcast speakers um, or guests, and she shared about actually how you just got like, and it, and it kind of adds on to that radio station where you kind of like try to shut it out. What you resist persists. What you resist yeah. persists. Oh, I shouldn't be thinking about this. I shouldn't be thinking about this. Shouldn't be anything. It's just kind of like, it's like, don't slap your brain. Ah, oh, stupid. I'm, you should be thinking and be focusing on your kids right now. Just like, oh, okay, you know, don't slap it. And note it. I, like I pull out my phone, write a note, and then the note's done. And because like I get a lot more stress and anxiety around forgetting that solution or forgetting that idea or something, so I note it and then I choose what am I going to do. I can't do anything now, be present. So it's kind of like don't slap, choose, note it, move on. And, and then for me um, particularly, that's really helpful for me in terms of just be, be, becoming more present again and it's a choice
1: yeah there's definitely something i heard a good one the other day that said somebody said your your brain is for coming up with ideas not for storing ideas Mm. so once you have it get it out of your brain because it's yeah it's a I, i do like that um is to to just write it down or get it get it out of your head and then and then you can move beyond that thought
2: definitely a believer in the um what you resist persists and what you give energy to grows and i find a lot of people sit in the why am i thinking this why am i feeling like this and the more that you sit with it, the more it's going to stay there. And again, with CBT, it's a theory behind um, people that can't sleep. So if you sit there and you get so angry about the fact that you can't sleep, it just snowballs again and again. So what they suggest to do is sit there and be like, right, I can't sleep right now. That's okay. It's something that will pass eventually. We'll get through it. But the more angry that you get and the more that you resist it, and you're absolutely right, externalizing it, minimizes things as well. That's another phrase that I, I use a lot of my students a lot as well is um, to externalize is to minimize, even if that's just talking about something or writing mm-hmm. it down. Mm-hmm.
0: It's it's like like Alex has this awesome thing because she's pretty good at sleeping. And <laughs> and um, not saying like she's really good at waking up at the same time as well. It's not like she sleeps for 24 hours a day. But, um, um, but she had this saying that just totally just like slapped me in the face. And it's kind of like when you're trying to sleep, right, you get angry at yourself. What do you do? You stay awake because you're trying to sleep. And it's almost like a baby. You don't like slap a baby to sleep. Is, <laughs> I hope you don't do that. Everyone is neat, right? But you're really kind. You're really gentle, right? And you kind of like rock a baby to sleep, right? So it, it, it's almost like if, if you can't fall asleep and you try to get angry at yourself, like it, that's just the worst thing to do because you're not going to then go to sleep because you're angry at yourself so absolutely
2: and that's very much what the cbt theory is behind it as well like we say they think that the best sleepers are the people that have absolutely zero thought behind their sleep you know they go they get into bed they're not angry for the first few minutes that oh my god i'm not asleep yet they're just like sleep's gonna come eventually it might be in a couple of minutes it might be in 30 seconds but let me relax and then it'll be a normal process
1: hmm you said something right at the beginning of the conversation. In your first job, you asked a lot of questions and then you didn't want to ask any more questions because you felt like you should know this. Is that a common thing with, with, with new graduate vets? Like I, I ask because I, I've seen it in, in new graduates as, a, as, a, as an employee not asking questions. And I want to say, why aren't you asking more questions? Do you think it's, it's, it's something that people do struggle with, that feeling of, oh, I shouldn't be asking questions?
2: I think potentially. I mean, even with the, the mentoring of like recently graduated vet, school, vet students that I do talk to, it doesn't come up a huge amount. And maybe after this podcast, maybe it'll be something people talk about more because there's almost, when you're at school, we learn topics that the teacher teaches you so much of it that you're going to get examined on something that they've taught you. So if you learn enough of what they've given you, you're definitely going to know the answer. Whereas being a vet, there's so many thousands of different things that could happen. There's always going to be a red herring that comes up. But we've been so educated through the school system that we should know everything, that there's almost for some people maybe a bit of a shame again coming from this radio station behind not knowing an answer and saying you should know this whereas maybe if the conversation does come up more because there's always going to be something that some of us don't know particularly in a clinical scenario that a new condition or something that you learned about at vet school but in 10 years you've never seen and you need to go and look back up so I think it probably is a bigger issue than than we realize
1: and in, in your, in that position, because you said the, that boss was very supportive, was that all just you? Like, were there external circumstances that made you feel like you shouldn't? Did people ever get snarky with you or that? Or was it just you being an overachiever?
2: I think it was definitely me being a, an overachiever. I think, like we say, that that narrative in my head saying, you should know this, you'll feel okay when, and then the bar would just get higher and higher.
1: Okay. All right, so I think the only lesson here is ask questions, people. Nobody expects you to know
2: everything. Oh, 100%. I think just ask away, like, as much as we say it and we mean it, there are no stupid questions. Like, it's better to, to ask than to beg forgiveness afterwards. It's better to go and ask a question at the beginning.
1: I'll flip it around. Most more experienced vets that I know are actually quite flattered when you ask them a question. Because you feel like, yeah, yeah, I know my stuff. I can. Um, it makes it feel nice to be asked a question by, by a younger vet. So there's no shame in asking.
0: And from an employer point of view, right, okay, so someone who hires lots of vets, it's the people who ask the questions that I feel more comfortable about hiring than the people who don't ask questions. And, like, that is someone who is open and honest and vulnerable about what they don't know. And then from a, an employer's point of view who has employed people and has done many wrong things, I also believe that actually as part of an employer's responsibility is to be open and vulnerable about what they don't know too rather than bluff their way and feel like as if they should know everything because when an employer shares their vulnerability, shares or even learns from their employees, that's a, That's a level of connection that's a level of trust that that they' they're never going to achieve in any other way and what happens then it opens the the, the it opens the platform and opens the ground for actual mistakes to occur and to not feel judged um, and to be honest and open about it um, and and that was actually led not just by me but actually from the Robin Simon who years of experience in an emergency and I was scared about sharing the mistakes that I had because, like, I like I just didn't want to acknowledge that I made mistakes. But then when they shared their mistakes and shared how bad their mistakes were, it was like, oh my god! Like these guys are still successful people. They are amazing veterinarians, right? And they still make mistakes. And one of them's a specialist. And it just it it actually was this humbling experience of actually now I'm allowed to forgive myself for not knowing stuff and for making mistakes as well.
1: You mentioned rob so rob webster who is also a guest on the podcast an emergency specialist um, who, who gerardo works with I, I phoned him once and it was so nice for me to hear this i phoned him about an unrelated matter and he answers the phone and he says he starts the conversation with man i nearly stuffed up a case last night and proceeds to tell me how he missed something potentially really obvious and life-threatening and it was so nice for me to hear him say i stuffed up a case and one of the junior vets picked it up and stop me from making a major mistake and so that's a certain as you say it's a good let off I, I find when I very often when, when we have students in the clinic or younger vets if they ask me a question my answer will very often be I, I don't am not sure I don't know let's find out together um, because yeah there's no need to, to pretend that you know everything all the time
2: and isn't it crazy how um the script that negative voice wants a thousand examples of success to label you as a success yet it will take one failure and try and label you as a failure with that and I think the more that as a profession we talk about these things like you say like oh my god I made a mistake the people higher up they set the culture and the practice then of look it's fine don't worry obviously be as safe as you can, but there is one day going to be something that you don't know. And then we act as a team to try and work it out. And just making it the conversation, because I think for me, a lot of it was that in my head, this voice that was telling me, you'll be okay when you've passed your internal medicine certificate, for example, I was looking at other certificate holders who looked like they had everything together and they knew everything, which was what people saw looking at me from the outside. But if we'd had that conversation and said, my God, sometimes I still have to go and double check that and go and look this up and I just completely didn't know what I was doing with this one and I felt like a new graduate again. Oh yeah, that happened to me too. And then suddenly it normalizes it again, minimizes it, normalizes it.
0: I- I've referred to my own book because I forget what the hell is in it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why you that's wrote why it. I wrote it, because I could remember it. As soon as you could refer to it. That's, okay. no, that's the whole point. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, I, I want to come back a little bit to the specifics of of imposter syndrome as as such as a, as a syndrome. Um, how how do you recognize it? Because I think most people will, will feel these feelings from time to time. I, I, I did a, a bit of reading before this as well, and apparently like eighty percent, eighty five percent of people will yep. have have episodes of call it imposter syndrome and I like the the, the, article I it said not to be confused with the syndrome I forget the name, the syndrome where you believe that somebody else is actually an imposter, so it's not actually my wife it's an imposter (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm not talking about that imposter syndrome (laughs) there's a syndrome like that as well apparently
2: imposter syndrome and the feelings behind it are something that at some point all of us will feel at some point in our lives now the definition of imposter syndrome is a personal persistent internalized doubt of yourself um, and not recognizing your achievements not being able to take compliments that people give to you feeling like you're a fluke for example so in terms of imposter syndrome itself it's not like a mental health condition it's just a phenomenon that occurs and I think it tends to occur at certain stages in people's career so it feels like it's happening to you continuously and what I don't like to do as much as I talk about imposter syndrome just as a label for these feelings is I never want anyone to label themselves as I feel like I'm an imposter I have imposter syndrome because then Again, what you give energy to grows. So you see it everywhere and you start listening to it. You tune into the radio station. You tune into that voice more because you're like, oh, my God, it's my imposter syndrome. So the way mm-hmm. that I talk about it, I try and normalize it. You know, we've all felt like this at some point, And it's maybe not been your choosing. It's something that's happened to you in the past that's just brought these thoughts about. So if you, like we say, look at the specific definition of it, it's this persistent internalized self-doubt feeling like somebody's going to come along and say, you've not earned those qualifications.
1: I like um, the article I read said, it was a Wikipedia page. uh, (laughs) And in the end it said famous people who have openly admitted to severe, severe feelings of imposter syndrome. And the one that I liked the most was Neil Armstrong. I'm just picturing Neil on the rocket like five, 40, shit, I'm, I'm the wrong person. I shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> do I know what these 17,000 dials do? <laughs> I don't think I should be on this. How many stop?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, and one of the really interesting things I um, I once read was a quote saying real imposters don't get imposter syndrome, which I think was super interesting because if you are actually a fraud you know you're a fraud and you're winging it. And you're like, someone's going to find me out one day, but I've enjoyed the ride up until now.
1: Yeah, Fra- fraud or a psychopath, probably. <laughs> one of the two. <laughs> so Katie, you, you spread your time between coaching yeah. and then you work on on your, your writing or, or producing materials. And then you also do clinical work still, is that right?
2: Yeah, I still do clinical work. So I am... Um, I don't know, do you guys use the term locum as well? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I know in uh, in the US they call it more like relief work, don't they? But I I work as a locum, so I have my own limited company. Um, That's a little bit up in the air with some changes at the moment going on in the United Kingdom. But... I do probably two to three shifts per week. Um, I started locum in mm-hmm. about 18 months ago because I tried to buy into the practice that I was at, but unfortunately got outbid by a corporate buyer, a, a lot of money. Um, oh, so goodness. I didn't end up getting it, which was really sad for me at the time because uh, I'd worked there five years as the, the senior vet. I loved it. Um It would have been my dream but you know things happen for a reason and like we say um it's just the way you interpret the situation so it it led me down a very different path
1: how did you start with the the mentoring slash coaching career side of your career
2: so obviously i explained my story and the the darker times that i've been through and I ended up learning the system of broadband consciousness, which was started by two of my, my mentors. And I probably let it percolate myself for a good year using the techniques. And my life completely changed as I realized that that negative voice wasn't me, what my true worth was, that actually, although it was telling me all your value is from all these external things, it wasn't true. All along, my value was just being me and that took a lot of pressure off I was like wow I can still do things because I want to but not because it's trying to make me a more valuable or a better person and I started talking more to the vets and the nurses that I was working with and it became more and more apparent that everybody felt very similarly and we do exercises with the whole practice kind of doing look this is what I tell myself but this is what everyone sees you as and we were learning from each other So I started doing my Instagram page just thinking, you know what, this is too good for me not to share. Like, I need to get this out there to help other people because I was in such a bad place where I thought nothing was going to help me. I actually went and sat when I went on the broadband consciousness course, like this is the last chance I've given myself, you know, I think – my brain's broken you no one 's as broken as me no one will fix me and I was like wow this this actually worked for me and from there it kind of just snowballed in the fact that more people were contacting me and asking me I ended up doing um, a coaching course as well and organically it's kind of grown from there you know people come to me I don't really advertise it specifically my my main aim is just to help other people because The horrible place that I was in with all those external achievements. My life had been a performance-related experience where when I'd got qualifications and was doing well, it valued my life as good. And if something went wrong, it would value my life as terrible. And I wanted to show people there was another way. And that's where the coaching came about. So that's officially been going for about a year now um and like i say i've got a good number of clients um i've been asked to speak at quite a few larger events in the uk this year and i just believe that things will happen because you're putting good out there and like whether we want to think about it in terms of the law of cause and effect or if we want to think about the law of attraction or in simple sense what you put out there comes back to you it 100% works. I just keep putting the good stuff out there and I'll tell you, good stuff keeps coming back.
0: Yeah. There was something you said before, actually, which really um, uh, sort of resonated with me because I haven't heard anyone say this before, but it's, it's actually changing your state, right? And and, and was maybe regarding um, when you're in a situation where you feel like as if you... Um, potentially aren't really, you know, your thoughts aren't self-serving you and so forth. And and you mentioned self-like changing your state. In, in what way did, uh, do you coach your clients? Or what way do you feel that changing your state benefits, uh, benefits people?
2: I think it just changes the thought pattern. So whether you're looking at it down a, a CBT path or whether you're looking at it on a, a broadband consciousness path, it redirects your attention, And whether it's that you're just getting your heart rate up, I found, for example, I did a lot of CrossFit for years. And I used to find that some of those workouts, I know you do a lot of HIIT training, so you'll know when you're so busy dying on the floor, you don't have any time to think about what that voice is telling you. You're just gasping for breath and hoping that you survive the rest of this workout of the day. <laughs> so I find that a state change is sometimes it's just a, a change of scenery, a change of input. And it breaks the cycle like you end up with a cycle of um you've got a panic cycle maybe so your heart rate's gone up and you're worried so you think oh my god there's something wrong i'm listening to the script the negative voice is there your adrenaline goes up you've got more physical sensations it's getting worse something's definitely wrong oh my god what's wrong with me my brain's not working and just physically getting yourself up moving away from that identifying that it's not you um very much changing your state is quite a tony robbins thing um but I find that it works for me and it works for a lot of people. Even if it's just sometimes as crazy as you'll say to somebody, get up for the next minute, jump up and down on the spot, increase your energy, change your state, get out of this. Like the script, the negative voice will have you sort of hunch, sit down, introvert, think inwardly. Whereas that just changes your physiology and changes your, your mind as well.
0: Yeah, I see, see. That's that's kind of exactly the the way that I consider it, and how coaching clients I, I help them as well get to the point where they always have this kind of state in mind, like it's and it's kind of what we we call it a five star formula, and the first step is changing your state. I never really understood it because it's like, well, well, you know, if I'm I'm feeling down, I should just be able to turn my thoughts off and just feel happy again, right? And then so, so, so you'll, you'll read things like, okay, you should smile instead of like frown. Because, and that's part of the change in your state. It's like you can actually decide to physically change your state. It's kind of like when you're depressed and sad or overwhelmed and stuff, you will find yourself in a state where you're kind of hunched over, kind of working your computer, just like falling asleep and just like this sucks and I don't even know why I'm doing this and whatever, right? But then if you physically actually change your state to a more upright posture shoulders back chin up kind of thing right You're like your yeah. mind is your mind follows your physical state so much easier than your actual f- mind um, than your body following your physical state it's kind of like you can trick your mind physically like by changing your physical state so much easier than actually just trying to tell your mind hey be happy now you should be happy so
2: well, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you guys have looked or come across much about neuroplasticity before and the mind-body connection, because that's something that I'd certainly changed my mind on over the last few years, and that's super powerful. Again, I don't know if it's something you've come across or
1: I've heard the term, but but please expand.
2: So it's talking about for for years they used to just think you well your brain was hardwired and that was how it was it was going to function. But they started to look into and realize that actually what we do with our body and our mind are so interconnected. So we've said before, your brain doesn't know the difference between something it's imagined and something it's actually seen. But like we say with the state and smiling, for example, will falsely make your body think that you're happier. They've done so many experiments where they've looked at the mind-body connection. And for example, there's, I think it was Harvard University that did what we call the, the piano study which was where they had one big group of people, half of them for two hours a day for five days, they had to play like five piano key sequence. So they could have little breaks in between, but they just have to keep playing with those same fingers, ding, 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 again and again, five days. And what they did was every day they scanned them and looked at that part of the brain. And they Mm -hmm. saw that by the end of the five days, that part of the brain had grown. Because of the fact that there was a greater use of a muscle, the motor cortex that was devoted to it grew. Interestingly, they took the same number of people, they had to have their hands flat on the table, and they had to imagine that they were playing those five keys for the exact period of time for five days. And the brain grew in the exact same way as the ones that had actually played it. Like you couldn't, it was completely indistinguishable between the two sets of results of the people that played the five piano keys and the people that had just imagined it. And that just shows you the power of the connection between the mind and the body. And there's another one where they had someone for, I think it was two months, for 15 minutes a day, they had to flex a little finger. And they found that at the end of that period, the people that had done that, their little finger was 50% stronger. But the people that imagined it, the little finger was still 37% stronger.
0: A similar study like that with basketballers, they got like basketball college basketballers and they got them to so one group to practice actually physically shooting hoops and one group to m- imagine shooting hoops and like getting the hoop like getting it in the hoop and they were equally as um awesome. like sufficient so, proficient so, at so the what you're of saying of
1: is you with your crossfit katie and you with your hits and all that stuff you're fools i'm lying <laughs> <Bull. I'm laughs> picture that i'm lifting weights <laughs> Pretend actually
2: there's another super interesting one where they were looking at rehabilitating people from horrible injuries you know where they can't walk and things and the ones where they did physio for everyone but the group where they actually had to spend time visualizing and imagining getting up and walking again and going through the motion of it recovered significantly faster than the ones who just had the physio alone so when you look at all this it's it's phenomenal that when we go through these things in our head, you listen to the radio station, you listen to the script, whatever you want to call it, those thoughts that zip past that aren't yours, when you get on them and you live them, after a while it's going to make a change in your brain. Like we say, there is a way to rewire your brain. And sort of thinking about thinking, they also think that the thought process can affect like your empathy and your compassion. So it just opens up a huge amount of possibility for the power of our brain. Like you say, with Gerardo says, like the state that we're in, you think about if you put yourself in like a hunched, crippled state, you're going to feel pretty down. Whereas if you sit up straight and stand tall, before you go into like do a talk, for example, and you're telling yourself, like you were saying at the beginning, Simon Sinek with his, your brain doesn't know the difference between excitement and, um, and nervousness. Mel Robbins, she says similar. She says before she goes into a talk, she says, I'm excited. I'm excited. She's like, my heart's going like crazy. I could easily tell myself I'm terrified, but I stand back, put my shoulders down, stand straight, put myself in the position of the person that I am. Like, how much more special do we want to feel if one in 400 trillion? I mean, it's pretty crazy odds to overcome to get here. And then go on and and be the person that you choose to be, not listening to that voice or the radio station being like, hey, what if they don't listen to you? What if they don't believe you? Well you know what, it doesn't matter if they don't believe you because that's them. You can't control what goes on in their head. You can just give it your best.
0: I have this secret that I share, that I will share to everyone now. Now that I'll share it share to you guys. But it, 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 and like, but I, I, I go like several layers further or maybe this is like just normal for people, I don't know. But I, I have this like completely rehearsed image in my mind and, I, and, I, and it's called the G because everyone calls me G. Um, and, and there's this moment about five years ago where I stood on stage and I presented and I couldn't see people, but I could see light. I could feel heat and I could feel the presence of people. But I felt in this, like this moment where I, what I was talking about, I just had complete certainty about what I was talking about, how to explain it. And the outcome that I was going to achieve and the end, yeah, and the outcome was just like like clapping and innovation, but it was this moment of just pure, just um, how would you say, I was just in this performance state and I can close my eyes and I can still I can still feel like I've rehearsed this, rehearsed this so many times in my mind, how my body was, how I was standing, how like my suit jacket felt and how the shoes were a little bit tight around my shoes. But the thought process that were that in my head, the language that was in my head and then what that language then made this situation mean. And I pull that out when I'm real down and out because it's kind of like, what would the G do here? And that's my most powerful state I've ever been in my whole entire life. And it just has helped me come out of these dark areas because the G would do this, get up out of your bed, you lazy bastard, and take some action, <laughs> whatever it may be, right?
2: But, you know, that's that's visualization like at its best and that's something that again I used to think that visualization was a bit hippie and a bit woo-woo and a bit crazy but it's not because again like we say with neuroplasticity your brain doesn't know the difference so if you focused on that every day and played that again and again slowly your brain will know that that's you that's the real you and it is and you kind of that makes it then you can kick the radio station down a little bit. You can stop listening to the script. like, no, this is me. I'm like, I'm kick ass. I'm going to go out there and do a good job. And the more that I read about visualization and it's something that one of my other mentors that I've had, he he was an ex-emergency um, uh, doctor consultant and he taught me about visualization, which is amazing, the power behind it. Like there are so many books out there on it, but you only have to look at some of the most successful people, sportsmen businessmen athletes they'll do similar like they won't go through in their head losing they'll sit and they'll like physically think about getting the shot you, there's a brilliant video out there on youtube of um, conor mcgregor the fighter who says when i was in ireland i used to drive around in a clapped out fiesta but i was pretending that it was a soft top bentley in california Like that was what I was pretending as I was driving around. And then he's like, and now here I am. I'm in my soft top Bentley in California. And you might argue and say how many people are going to be out there that do that and aren't in a soft top Bentley in California. But at the end of the day, how much more fun are they going to be having if they're pretending that they are driving around in their soft top Bentley in California, even if they are in Ireland in a little clapped out car that's going to break down. It's all about perception, visualization, the meaning that we gift things like you say the response that we choose and that's the power of our brain and and what hopefully more and more people are learning about
1: interesting thing i heard the other day is because it it sounds more and more and from what you're saying and from what i've heard before as well is is it is it is training so you have to train your brain to think in these ways mm. um so you mentioned meditation earlier M- I'm learning more and more that meditation is training your brain to think in that way so that when it's necessary it'll default to that way but um, so then somebody compared it to to physical exercise but the great thing that I heard which which was new to me was that unlike physical exercise you can train your brain those ways and then stop training uh, but the changes remain So it's not like weightlifting and you're going to go skinny again Mm. Your brain actually keeps those habits, those those neurological changes that occur are actually permanent.
2: I think certainly I think that does happen because it just gets easier because our thought processes are something that are going on all the time. So rather than like physically going to the gym and lifting weights, it's almost like having a job where you're having to lift heavy boxes all the time. So all of it comes down to consciousness really and being awake and like we said at the beginning knowing that every thought that you have whichever method you're going to choose to try and rationalize those thoughts or not just realize that not every one of them is a fact and you don't have to own every thought that comes into your head and then slowly like with meditation the idea of meditation is that you can sit and watch thoughts float past sometimes there'll be nothing in your head at all but you don't give significance to them and that's the real power
1: fantastic um we should probably start wrapping up i could talk to you all night Um, I, i love this stuff katie we well first of all katie have you got anything anything else that you want to talk about or mention or bring up that you think is important
2: yeah we've covered a lot of stuff i mean i know you were saying what can people actually do in terms of imposter syndrome and dealing with it what I'd say, if I ran down like really quickly a few points, I'd say first one, we talk about it. Just talk about how you're feeling. Say, you know what? I feel like I'm doubting myself today. And then someone else will say it and you, you start the conversation. The second thing, like we said, don't, don't own every thought that you have and don't think that every thought that you have is a fact and that there's a basis behind it. And you don't have to get on every thought and run with it remember that it's normal sometimes to feel like an imposter, because that might be a point of growth. Like that's the point when that voice is going to speak loudest or the thoughts will come in most rapidly. And you think, you know what, maybe this means that I'm growing and progressing rather than it being that, oh my God, um, it's a negative. There's a brilliant um, thing by Bob Proctor where he talks about there being a terror barrier, where you've got Two ideas that don't line up in your brain. So you've got the new idea and you've got like your subconscious pre programming. And when you get to the point of making a breakthrough, you hit what we call the terror barrier. Now, a lot of people will bounce off the terror barrier back to where they were and back to where they were comfortable with. Sometimes it's pushing through that terror barrier and being like, no, I choose this. I know it doesn't feel comfortable right now, but I'm doing all the right things. And then you've got freedom on the other side of the terror barrier. So, no, it might just be growth choosing your own story and your own interpretation of things and looking after yourself and your self-worth knowing that not knowing it, the quest, the idea the answer sorry to a question or not knowing what's going on with the case doesn't make you a bad person just means that you've got to learn something more so they'd be they'd be my my main points for people and celebrating your wins that'd be the final thing that voice in your head will always be like right next thing You've got that next thing. But make a conscious point of being like, no, you did this. There was no mistake at the exam board. Somebody thought you deserved this examination on the day that you did it. And as much as a classic one for me, that negative voice wants to say, if you sat that exam again today, you wouldn't pass it. Or well, maybe I wouldn't because I wouldn't have had six weeks revision like I did before the last one. But it doesn't take away the qualification that I've already got. So they'd be my, my main points for people to take.
0: I love the last one, the love one, the last one about celebrating wins and and I totally believe that integrating wins into your identity is one of the most, I don't know, like poorly skilled things that we do, right? You know, there's always a next level or it was always, oh, that person helped me so it wasn't really quite me or we just forget on a daily basis the wins that we have um, I don't know, okay, like just my final question is how do, you, how do you get people to integrate wins into their identity?
2: The first thing I do, like we said before, is I remind them who they really are and that none of their worth actually fits on these things. Like you are not a better person because you've got a vet degree. So you wouldn't point that person out on the street and say, you're a better person because you've got a vet degree. I just say, look, all that work that you did brought this about. It's yours. There is no mistake. But the whole point of identity, your whole strength and power sits with who you are and that you're here, that you're a completely unique individual and you can't compare unique. I think the minute that you try and make them a more valuable person by adding those wins, suddenly they're scared of them being taken away again, if that makes sense. So that's that's the main basis of what I teach people is it starts with self-worth and again, another Ed Milet thing, but he talks about being blissfully dissatisfied. He says, be happy with what you've got, but want to do more. So it's like, the win is yours. Let's talk about what the script's saying. Let's talk about what the negative voice is saying, but it's yours. But even if it was taken away, you're still you, you're still amazing, you're still brilliant. You can still go out there and and do what you want to do with like this antivirus on your brain essentially because that's what we're not given at any point through school we're just taught to compare and compete and that when we get into school maybe we're not very good at this so perhaps we're a five out of ten and not ten out of ten and when we get a certificate then we feel like a six for a little bit and then we drop back down to a five so that's that's the main way that I do it I try and get people's identity set on the fact of who they are rather than what they've got Mm.
0: Totally, yeah. No, I, I agree. It's awesome. Thank you. Have you got any? We'll do our final
1: wrap-up questions. Have you got any any favourite podcasts? Are you a podcast listener? Other than the Vet Vault, obviously. Yeah, that's obviously. Yeah.
2: I am a podcast listener. Um, obviously the Vet Vault. Um, in terms of my favourite ones, actually come from the not the non-veterinary world. So I really like the Gary V audio experience. Um, I love the Ed Milet show. Um. There's another one by a girl called Lauren Tickner. I like sort of self-development type podcasts, but I always just see what I can glean from them that fits in with like my view and, and how I see the world. But I constantly just fill myself with, with material like that.
0: Are you, are you a podcast listener or you're a cod, pa, or podcast integrator? Like pod uh, pod pod podcast? Uh, cod but uh, hey man we my, my kids and i have talked about starting
1: a podcast and we're going to call it the cod
2: <laughs> i'm
0: not sure what it's going to be about but that's the name but like like I, I i'm a i'm a like a very deliberate podcast listener like and every podcast I listen to i take notes like it and and i integrate you know like i'm not like one just sits in the car and just goes oh that's good and then i forget about it two minutes later like i don't know
2: I I love actionable steps. I hate podcasts where they go through and you're like, I haven't actually learned anything I can actually do here. So yeah, I try and put them into my daily routine. Like I, I plan my day out. I track what I've done during the day. I look at my wins for the day. I look at my gratitude for the day. So if there's anything that I can try and put in, there's actually, it's a super interesting theory by Tim Ferriss. He says, try something completely new or try the opposite for 48 hours and see how it suits you. And I quite often do that. You know, if I like the idea of something, but I'm not quite sure whether I can integrate it, I'll try it for a few days and think, and then reassess, is this something that's actually going to benefit me? Is this something that I'm choosing or is this something that the script wants? Cause it's like a productivity thing. So very much a, an action taker. I like a good actionable step.
1: So, so how does it look for, for you and, and for you Gerardo, if you say you, you write it down. Like, where, where do you keep it? Have you got a physical diary, or mm. a file on your computer, or, or what do you do with it? I, I'm asking because I'm only now, after being a podcast addict for five years, now I'm figuring out a structure of what to do with the stuff I'm learning. But how? What do you do with it you, with your with your learning?
2: I have um, a notebook. Well, I have several notebooks, but I usually just put it all in one until it's full, and then I quite like to revisit them after that as well. So I try and put it all in one place if I can, but it does get full quite quick by the time I've made enough notes in there.
0: Mm. I'm, I'm a, uh, I I use my phone and I actually take notes. So I go split screen on my phone, podcast plane, and then um, note I use OneNote. And I'm just making sure. It's called, yep, yeah, it's called OneNote. And it syncs across to my computer. And what I do is actually I just create, I write down the title of the podcast so I know where I got it from. And then also then the topic of the podcast, confidence or win integration or ritual or something. And then I write the notes down as I, as I go through because then what happens then is I can search for it. So I know where she is. So hmm. while you're driving, I, I know, dude. <laughs> my car does drive itself, but you know, does I my phone, and uh, so this is my problem. Ninety
1: percent of my podcast listening is in the car, so I'm like, "Oh, I should remember to write that down." And then <laughs> it did
0: get really bad for a while where I was actually had a a, a cutting board on the, in the driver's seat with a notepad, <laughs> and then what I was doing was, is as I was driving because I could write without looking, and I would write down notes as I was driving. And then it was like, a, it was just like a notepad I had and it was full of scrawl, but I could still read it. But yeah, that's getting desperate. I wouldn't suggest having a cutting board <laughs> on your lap, writing notes as you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and
1: then we've got our, our final wrap-up um, so a final wrap up question. So you are a public speaker, so this is not too unfamiliar for you. you. You're at a conference and you've got the entire world's veteran new graduates listening to every word you're saying. And you've got a couple of minutes to tell them just one thing. What's your one message that they have to hear?
2: My one thing, and it might seem like a bit of an overused cliche in the vet profession, but it would be to be kind. And that's to themselves and to everyone else around them as well. And um, Whether that's being kind and looking after yourself and looking after the thoughts that you have and being your own best friend because that's going to send you far in life not feeling like everything that you do needs to be done in the next three months six months if you want to be a specialist brilliant but realize it's going to take time and be kind to yourself in the process and realize that everybody probably has something going on they're listening to these thoughts as well so just being kind that's the the biggest message that i give
0: cool i love it katie thank you
1: so much that was excellent
2: Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it.
1: I love
0: the idea of Hubert thinking about me in the shower. (laughs) I'm going to stop recording now.